Welcome to our podcast series, How Bass Music Shaped British Society. Bass culture research seeks to re-examine the history of Jamaican sound system culture in Britain and how its legacy has revolutionised the musical landscape from the way we socialise to economy. In this series, we explore sound, business, culture, people, preservation and society with fruitful discussion. Man, if you know I support bass culture, we are dealing I came to England in 1961 to join my parents um, and we lived in Shepherd's Bush at the time and then we moved to Holland Park a year later after I'd arrived. Um, even though I was 16 I went to school for two years um, at Christopher Wren in Shepherd's Bush. Um, my, my parents didn't want me to find an apprenticeship, they wanted me to go to school first for some reason. I didn't really um, achieve anything academically there. So I left school in 1963 and, and when I went to the Labour Exchange I was told I was unemployable. Um, Why do you think they viewed you as unemployable? Because I had no qualifications and I was um, I didn't have any experience. I, had, I didn't have much understanding of where I was because I'd only just arrived in the country. So I wasn't really equipped to deal with anything because I was just a, like a, almost a tourist, really. So it's fair enough. But I was indignant about it, of course. How do you move from being unemployable to being entrepreneurial? Well, I can't really answer it. I can only demonstrate it. <laughs> In that sense, because I mean, what happened to me was that um, I, while I was at school, I had a part-time job cleaning an office in Notting Hill Gate. So I always knew the value of money. So I worked in the mornings and in the evenings in this building cleaning this office. And that's how I made my money to begin with. And then I discovered that they were advertising for people to be clerical officers at the post office post office savings bank and I took the exam and I got the job as a clerical assistant in the post office and those were the days before computers when every account had a ledger in a central place and you imagine there was millions of ledgers that had to be updated and I was one of the people who helped to do that so I did that job for four years and um, so did that did you recognize that you were acquiring a skill set at that point? No, not at that time, because at that time what, what was happening, I, was, I started to be exposed to popular music, um, you call it indigenous popular music, you know, the Beatles, the Rolling Stones, um, Bob Dylan, people like that. I, I started to get into kind of ganja culture with my white friends. So, um, I was listening to a lot of kind of hippie music. So in terms of someone arriving from Trinidad and being immersed in, I'm assuming, a predominantly Jamaican community. No, I was, ne I was never immersed in the Jamaican community. I mean, first of all, it's Trinidad. And then I, because of, because I went to school, I didn't know anyone in the black community. I only knew the people at school who 
they, I, knew, I knew them. They didn't accept me. They weren't my friends. But I knew of quite a number of white English people. So I found a way to attach myself to them. I didn't know any black people, apart from my parents and a few of my parents' friends. I didn't, ha I didn't, make, I didn't have a black community to in which I could relate. So, um, so what was your main musical interest? Well, I mean, with my parents, I listened to Calypso, of course, and, and a little bit of reggae with my parents. But when I was out, it was, it was Helen, Helen Shapiro. It was um, all the stuff the, the white, boy, white kids were listening to. That's what I was listening to. And then it was Ray Charles. I remember when my first record I bought was um, Ray Charles, What I Say, the album. Um, and it was, um, it was Sam Cooke. It was, it was mainly black American music. Tamla Motown. I wasn't really into reggae that much until very, very much later on in, in my time in England. It was mainly Tamla Motown and black American music and white teenage music, if you want to put it like that. And just remind me, where were you located? In Notting Hill. Notting Hill. In Notting Hill. So we would, I would be, I would be, um, I lived in Holland Park. And I would spend my, in the evenings, I would go up to Notting Hill to the pub and hang out. We'd play bar billiards, we'd be in the coffee mill. There were people like um, Mick Fleetwood was one of the people who was around just hanging out. And, um, and we were on the, we, my, the people I knew were on the edge of the kind of Beatles scene. It was um, the, the Boyd, um, Jenny Boyd and, the, and her sister, they were kind of on the edge of that scene. There were people like that around. So, you know... I'd, never be, I'd go to parties. I was never really accepted by those people. I just, that's where I hung out. I didn't, I would, occasionally I'd go to the West Indian um, Student Center, which was in Old Scott. Um, you've got to remember, in those days, it was, um, you know, the, there was the mangrove, there was a the black scene, but I wasn't part of it. I wasn't, I was never, ever part of it. So... How did your musical taste develop from that point? Well, I mean, I really listened to a lot of this hippie music, you know. I was in a ganja haze for many years, you know, and then I got, then I took acid and, I, and then I was ill. I had, a, I, had a, I, had a, I had a series of nervous breakdowns and then through misfortune, I ended up in prison for three years. And I mean, I was there simply because I was black. I was the only black. All the other kids who were involved were white. There were 12 white kids. I was the only black. And I got the sentence, even though I was the least involved in the scene. So really, um, at that point, I, I spent a long time on, on remand waiting for my case to come to court. And it's in that period that I started to identify really as a black person i started to see myself as black for finally and i and i and i started i started a little company called black productions and my ambition even though it was a, psych, a kind of a psychotic haze was to centralize black artistic activity because i got fed up of negative black images and, you know, in those days, you open the newspaper, you would never see a positive black image. You might maybe see one on the sports page if, if, the, if the West Indies are playing cricket. 
but generally speaking, you saw no positive black images. So I started producing posters. I did the, the um, Daniel Hartman had a, a, um, a print of the three raster heads. I reproduced it um, into a big poster and I started distributing it to shops. I had a picture of a Dahomey King. I started distributing that to shops. So really, I was just doing that kind of thing, taking my posters wrong and also getting steeped in the Black Panthers and getting involved in the local Black Panther organization and, um, and becoming more community, a bit of a community activist, I guess you would call it. So would it be fair to say that you went from almost being an outsider in the Black community to an insider? Well, yeah, well, it, that's how it turned out because if you fast forward to Notting Hill Carnival, um, when I first went to Carnival, I was with a bunch of white kids, and, um, and I was as much a tourist in the Carnival as they were, although it was, I understood more about the vibes, the music, I, I knew a bit about it from home, but really I wasn't with the, I wasn't with the, the Caribbean people, I was with the, my hippie friends. When I first went to the carnival, when the, when the, in fact, when the carnival first came. But when I came out of prison and I went to carnival, I, didn't, I decided I was going to be, I was going to do something. So I, I started selling fresh orange juice in the carnival. So that's how I got involved. I started selling fresh orange juice. And then I found out a bit about how it worked and I became a steward in the carnival. And then, um, and then, we, had, then we had the rats. But before the riots, I'm with these same hippie people, there was one woman called Arabella Churchill, Winston Churchill's granddaughter, and another woman called Emily Young, whose father was a Lord, Lord Young. And they had this ambition to paint murals on the walls of the flyover, all the walls on the flyover. So basically, they started painting the walls of the flyover, and they wanted to raise money to buy paint. So. My, we started, I, I became part of the group that was doing gigs to fundraise to buy paint. The guy who was central to that was a guy called John Tiberi, who was one, he managed the 101ers, which is Joe Strummer's band. And he also worked with the Sex Pistols. Moving forward, that's where he, that's where he ended up. But John Tiberi was the guy who actually organized these events, and I was helping. And that's how I started to get an understanding of how music promotions operated, worked. So is it fair to say it's by accident? Well, but yeah, almost by, almost by accident. But, I, but then, through doing these gigs, in the, when we had the riots in 76, a defense committee was formed, a black defense committee. And, and I, was, I was on the defense committee in the role of fundraising. So I decided to do a benefit concert at the Hatton Hall. And I had the Clash, the Clash were committed to play, and Merger, which was a, which was a reggae band that was emerging. They were, the Merger was getting a lot of press, but their music was mediocre. But they were getting, because they had a manager, a guy called John Maxwell, who had a knack of getting the attention of journalists. Um, and so they would write about, if you look at, if you go through the archives, you'll see Merger were getting more press than Bob Marley. 
What's the timeline for that? This is 76, 77, 78, that period. Merger, merger. I mean, the merger was getting so much press that Bob Dylan asked for merger to play with him when he played Nebush, 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 what the place is called. Nebworth. So, so we, so, so it was, it was the Clash, Merger, and a steel band. And I've got a poster somewhere of the gig. But then um, I've told this story so many times. <laughs> um, Bernie Rhodes was managing the Clash. It was meant to be their first gig, and then Bernie Rhodes said that he thought it was too controversial and they shouldn't do it, so they dropped out. But as, and as they dropped out, I met one of the members of the last poets at a friend of mine's house in Notting Hill, a guy called Jimmy Thomas. He used to play with Tina Turner, with Ike and Tina Turner, played guitar. He's still here living in London. And so Jimmy introduced me to the last poets and I told him what I was doing and they said they would come and play the gig. Now, they were in Paris, they came over and did the gig. And because the last poets were coming to London for the first time, so you can call it an accident if you like. But the reality was, I had this huge press conference in my house. Every single music journal turned up at my house for this, for this press conference. And then we did the gig. I got, all the, I got all, the, all the interviews and stuff, you can have a look. Then we did the gig, and it was an amazing gig. I mean, I don't know, Don Letts was there for the first time with his little camera recording it, and he's never, he's never acknowledged that it was my gig, he's never. <laughs> um, so that was the gig, and Robin Denslow described the last poets as dated and naive, and Val Warmer raved about, the, I've got the, both reviews. I'm going to need those. And Val, 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 Val Warmer talked about how fantastic they were, but Robert, Robert Denslow was putting them down. So in the aftermath of this gig, I decided I was going to take this promotion thing more seriously. And I used to work with a guy called Hethcott Williams, who is a poet, a radical poet, white poet, and uh, his wife, Diana Senior. They organized the first picnic in the park at Windsor, Windsor Free Park. Um, and, you know, that's a whole story, and they, they, sued the, they sued the government and got compensation. And one of the guys, Nicholas Aubrey, who was part of that group, started Fristonia, you know, a free state, uh, people's free state down at the bottom of Labour Grove. And so that was the kind, those are the kinds of people I knew. I didn't really hang out with the brethren too much. <laughs> and so roughly what time slot we're in there? This is like, this is, this is, this is, uh, this is 77, 76, 77. And how do we move from... But, but can I say something about my entrepreneur? Being an entrepreneur, I forget to tell you, the one, because I was selling orange juice, I got involved in the fresh orange juice business from when I came out of prison. That's the business I did. In fact, when I was in the mental hospital, I would come out of the hospital on, on the weekends and come down to the Grove and squeeze oranges for the weekend. I'd make good money because... There's a hundred oranges in a box and it takes two and a half oranges to make a seven ounce cup of juice. 
a box of oranges, box of oranges costs two pounds fifty, and I could get between thirty-five and forty cups of oranges, orange juice. So I would take twelve pounds. So I would make, you do the math. I would make about eight or nine pounds per box, and I could do ten ten boxes in a day. That's just me. Now, in the summer of '76, when we had that glorious summer, I was doing forty-five boxes. And I had staff. So the business started to move on to another level. So it was my first real entrepreneurial adventure that was being successful, selling fresh orange juice in the streets of London. So would it be fair to say then the summer of 76 was, was my year? Absolutely the turning point in my life because I went home, to, I went back to the Caribbean. And when I came back, I came back fearless. And I squatted in a garden in Notting Hill, right at the top of Notting Hill, and put my tables down and started to sell orange juice. And literally, I tell you, I was taking hundreds of pounds every Saturday. This is 1976. Week in, week out, just taking this money. And, uh, you know, it's so funny because that the council were on to me all the time. The council were on to me all the time yeah. about uh, health and safety because I, you know, I didn't have any running water and this and that and the other. And, uh, but you know, if you look in the Portobello now, there's all sorts of people selling all kinds of food. None of them have got running water. But, but just want to top and tail this. So yeah. you're coming out of uh, staying in this uh, mental institution. Yeah. Being entrepreneurial, making money, and then going back in. So, essentially, were you just squatting? Yeah, yeah, that's right. I was. That's right. I was. That's right. I had a squat. Of course, I had a. Of course, I had a squat. I had a squat in Paris Square. So I keep all my stuff there. I had a squat. I would squat there, and then I go back to the hospital on Monday. So you're just reporting in. Yeah. So you're not there. Well, I'm there. I hadn't been discharged. I was allowed to go go away for the weekends. And on the weekends, just to get yeah. the weekends. Yeah, weekends I was coming up. And at the end of that summer, they, the, the psychiatrist wanted to put me on um, lithium. Do you know what lithium is? It's a drug that, um, that, that if, you are, if you suffer from mania or you're, you're um, bipolar, it, it calms you down. It, it, neutralizing, it neutralizes you. Basically, if I'd been taking lithium for the last 40 years, I wouldn't be the person sitting here. <laughs> well, well, that just questions the whole diagnosis and that whole... Absolutely, absolutely. But that was, that was where they wanted me to go. So if we go from that period where you're entrepreneurial, you've, you've uh, on the periphery of the industry, yes. via um, your, I was going to say your extended community, but it's really the white community that yeah. you're in, um, at what point do we, and this is a timeline, that you're now recognizing in yourself that... The possibility. Of promoting as some Well, it, this, this is after the last poets. It's after the last poets. I begin to see there's a, there's a possibility that I could do this thing. So, I... Um, I, I go to the people who run the Immunity Trust 
and I make a deal where I'm hiring the Aklam Hall every Friday night and I'm committed to producing a concert every Friday night. So I set up in business. I'm, I'm, I'm booking bands, I'm printing posters, printing leaflets, distributing leaflets, distributing posters every week and also doing a gig every week. And on those gigs I'm putting on two punk bands and a reggae band. So this would have been 76-ish? Sem this, this is 77, all of 77, all going through 78, and then they, then they burned the building. I got depressed. And this is Acklam Hall? Acklam Hall. Then they burned the building, and after they burned the building, they sell the building for a pound to Vince Powell, and I'm out. So you're... Nothing Hill. For two years almost. Throughout the Rock Against Racism. Yeah, period. yeah, yeah. So yeah, to yeah. what extent would you be known to Rock Against Racism organizers? Well, it, yeah. Know, was well, there something happening on the fringe of that? Well, I mean, I was on the fringe of Rock Against Racism. I would only describe myself as being on the fringe because they never accepted me as part of anything. The, the band that I worked with that was very much part of Rock Against Racism was Misty and Roots. Now, Misty and, Roots were, Misty and Roots were the band that made me, compounded my, my, my idea that I would be successful. After The Last Poets, it was Misty and Roots. Because every time I put on Misty and Roots, I would, make, I would take some money. I remember going to my bank, National Westminster Bank, and asking for a loan of 500 pounds to do a concert with Misty and Roots. And the bank, and even though I had my father's guarantor, and my father owned his own house, and, and my father's never had a day off work. They told me my guarantor wasn't good enough. And I remember I actually did the, did the gig, successful, 400 people paying £1.50. I took money, I paid Misty and Ruth, I actually made money. I went in the bank with the £500 in my hand, and I cussed them out. <laughs> I got the letter from the bank manager telling me he was appalled at my behavior and he wants me to come in and close my account. Really? <laughs> yeah. On the back of being successful without them? Yes, because I, I rubbed their nose in it. I said, you know, <laughs> look, see, this is... Anyway, I, you know, um, so yeah, like Misty was my key band, but I mean... There was some, one of the things I found that happened was I would always try and find a reggae band to put on with, the, with punk bands because the punk bands were easier to find. Bands like the Raincoats, um, the Members, um, the Ruts, um, Prague Vec, the 101ers, John Otway. Oh, I could get the white, I could actually get the white bands. I had difficulty getting the black bands in those days. But why was that? They, did, they didn't exist. They didn't know me, and I didn't know them. And they were, and the black bands that there were didn't get much work anyway. And so, and they were kind of suspicious of me. So, what the scenario would be would be, I would pay the black bands top money, and I like I'd pay I'd pay the black bands say hundred pounds and I'd pay the punk bands 25 pounds each. And if, the, if on the night the gig didn't work out, the, the punk bands would say to me, Wolf, you know, it's cool, man, you know, thanks for the promotion, you know, no problem. But the black bands, 
they be say, I'm a professional musician, and I have to have my money, you know, Rasta. I don't mess with my money. <laughs> this, was, this was happening all the time. <laughs> so whatever happened, you had to pay? Whatever happened, I definitely had to play the, play the brothers. No matter how it went, I had to pay the brothers. But the white people were much more sympathetic to my position. And in fact, there were a few white bands that I put on who had major following. They were not very good bands, but they had big crowds of friends who would come. So they pulled more people? And pull loads of people, yeah. And you know, and a, a lot of the black bands didn't have any particular following. They were just, they were just musicians, but they... Like I put on um, Zabandes and, and Simits, um, the, it, the Simrons, I think. They weren't that big, but they were, they were up and coming, the Simrons. Um, I can't remember some of them. I, I did Gonzales, but they weren't, they weren't a black band, but I did Gonzales. And, um, I mean, I got lots of posters and stuff. I, can, I can't remember some of their names now, you know, but they, I do have the... I do have the memories are recorded, let's put it that way, of some of the black bands. Um, well, no, we'll come back now. I think it'd be interesting to just edit them in. And yeah. So, so, so basically, these are. This is how it was. I was doing this thing, and then they burned the building, and I, and I moved out because, in in reality, what should have been happening is, the trust, the Manti Trust, should have been. Affording me a salary and affording me the venue. Because in fact, what I was doing was, I was promoting the venue 24-7. Because I was putting ads in The Enemy, ads in Time Out, ads in Sound Magazine, putting up posters in West London every week, distributing leaflets every week. Acclamore, acclamore, acclamore. This is what I was doing. But I was paying for the privilege, because I was paying the rent, paying for the little office, but at this point, are you recognizing that you've become the promoter? Or no, I'm still doing the orange juice business. I'm doing them in tandem. So the orange juice business is supplementing my promotions. You know, Uncle Will's fresh orange juice. <laughs> and you can see a band. On the yeah, 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 yeah. Okay, so how do you move forward at this point? Because you're in denial of being the promoter, but you're still, which is, but you're still being enterprising around promotion. Yeah, well, what, 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 I mean, so this is, this is like 79, it's all finished for me, supposedly all finished. But I start work at the Portobello Hotel as the night, as the night manager. The Portobello Hotel is a hotel in Notting Hill, which is a hotel, I don't know if you probably, been aware of it because um, I've seen your ex-manager from the Steel Pulse in there a few times. He's come to, he was good friends with the Stranglers and they would stay there. Andy Bowden, he'd come in there to see them a few times. But all the, all the rock, all D-rock bands stayed at the Portobello Hotel and I worked there as the night manager. And they all know me, U2, um, to name, you know, U2, um, the Talking Heads, Buffy St. Marie, um, everybody, everybody, Mark, uh, Mark Harmon, they all come and stay there. All the people in the factory posse, they all come there. Um, 
so so I'm, I'm working there, so I have that kind of association. Can you just tell us what your role was? Well, I, um, I, I, I worked in reception. I trained all the, all the night receptions, all the part-time reception staff, I trained them. I was, I was responsible for, it was a 24-hour bar restaurant, so the, the hotel was open 24 hours. So at night, I was the person responsible. If anything happened, they have to call me, I have to go in. I would trade all the staff who did the night shifts, things like that. So I and that there. became the perfect networking? Well, it, it ought to be, but it's not really, because, you know, at the end of the day, these people are very snobby, and at the end of the day, you're, you're hotel staff, you're not music business. But it, it takes you a while to twig that that's how, that how, that's how they perceive it. For example, I introduced um, Paul McGuinness, who's the manager of U2, to Michael Evers, because I worked with Michael Evers, in fact, in 1981, um, I met him through Arabella Churchill and I got him Taj Mahal to headline Glastonbury. This is, this, is, this is at the point where Glastonbury is going on but always losing money. And then he makes the connection with CND and headlines with Taj Mahal. And for the first time, CND... Um, Glastonbury makes a profit. He makes, he makes a shitload of money. <laughs> right? Then the next year, I bring him Richie Havens. Now, that, Richie Havens, that's the story that actually changes my whole reality in terms of the music business. Because, you know, even though I worked with Aswad many times in the Aklam Hall and yeah, I'm jumping the gun because in 1979 I did the first carnival stage and that's when I worked with all the reggae, really worked with all the so-called happening reggae bands in West London. So, just so we keep the timeline, yeah. the Portobello Hotel yeah. is 1979, beginning of... Beginning, beginning 1979. Because, you know, what happened was this, my son was born in 1978. So basically, the pressure was on me to have a, have a proper income. <laughs> I know that one. <laughs> so that's hence the job at the Portobello Hotel. But I mean, but I, 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 but I wanted to be hands-on with my son. So I worked, I didn't work daytime, I worked evenings and night. So I could be with my son in the daytime and his mother went to work. So at what point now, because we're... We're in the hotel, we're yeah. meeting all these music industry yeah, individuals. Yeah, yeah. Does the networking translate into being able to put on a major reggae well, event? I, I start to do things at the Porchester Hall, which is a bigger venue than the Yaklam Hall. And, um, and also, I, I, I'm beginning to see through the carnival, through working the carnival, because I joined the Carnival Committee in 1979 to do the first stage um, and I put on, on that and on that stage I put on all the reggae bands in West London that, are, that, are rec have recording, that are recording bands. That's Alton Ellis, King Songs, Sons of Jar, Brimstone, Aswad. They're all playing on the stage and I put on 
loads of punk bang, punk bands as well. There's Carol Grimes, she's not punk, but Carol Grimes, the Vincent Units, the, the Raincoats, um, Hawkwind, Nick Turner, I mean, loads of bands. What's this, the name of the stage? This is the, the, the stage on Portobello Green. Um, there's a whole story behind that and the strategy for why the stage was there. And in fact, I managed to get the Rock Against Racism, the guys who did the PA for Rock Against Racism, to bring in the rig for that gig. They're called Star Hire. They brought the 20, the 20Ks, <laughs> which, which the 20Ks, which really find the area under the flyover and, cha and actually changed the nature of Nottingham Carnival. Because at that point, it was, um, it was um, one, that area was um, one of the epicenters of the carnival, but it was also static. Hmm. And people were there milling around for 48 hours and then they were told to go home and they, were, they didn't want to shift and that was always the bottlehead where the, where the troubles happened. And the year that I put the stage there in 1979, the police had actually worked out a plan to clear that area by hook or by crook, by squeezing, by, by using the, a school in the, in the north and a school in the south and moving the, those forces up the Portobello and down the Portobello and moving people out. But at that point, we had entertained them properly for, for the two days and we told them it was time to go and everyone left. No. So there was no one to charge. But that's part of the whole riot culture. Yeah, police. yeah, yeah. yeah. So, so in fact, even though my stage was musical, my stage had a, had a strategy in terms of redefining that area for us as a carnival community because the police weren't interested in <laughs> the police wanted the carnival gone man and if they could take it off the street triumphantly by smashing us down they would have done it but they weren't able to do it we were able to succeed and in fact you know I didn't have the support of anyone in my community I did it all pretty much by myself there was, why, why is that? Is there a reason I or think, something you can put your finger on because you're working within the community? I think they're all non-believers. I, they, they, I don't think they believe it can be delivered. They couldn't, they couldn't grasp the concept. When I, when I joined the committee specifically to do this stage, and I had to make all the moves, the police said, yeah, yeah, sure, because they didn't have any concept of what I wanted to do. The year before, in 1978, I asked for the stage, and the Amenity Trust, the man who ran the trust, built a platform 18 inches high on Portobello Green and said to me, that's your stage. And I said, you can't be kidding, man. So we didn't, do, we didn't do it. But then the next year, I joined the committee and came with a proper stage, which filled the space, not some little... Thing where you're going to put on a kindergarten project, you know? Mm. Which, which actually, it, that also is about the audience experience. Yes, yes, that's right. Because, I mean, absolutely. Which up until that point, it's the 
bands are considered almost members of the audience. It's, it's still a club. A small yeah, audience. yeah. But there was a massive audience under there. And in fact, the following year, a guy called Henry Martin, another guy called Steve, Steve he runs the, the Paddington um, Arts Project. They got money from the Arts Council to film it, to film the stage. What I did, I got... Um, because where I lived in Notting Hill Gate, Julie Christie also lived in the house. And she was the girlfriend of um, a guy called Duncan Campbell, who was um, one of the editors of Time Out magazine. And, I, and after I'd done the first stage and had been so successful and everyone was pretending nothing happened, I was always screaming and shouting going up the stairs about these goddamn people who, who totally negating my experience. And so one day, Julie came out and said to me, Wolf, what can I do to help you? And I said, well, you know, your boyfriend writes for Time Out. He can do something. And he got Val Wilmer to do a whole feature on reggae in the Grove. I've got the article somewhere. Of all. She, Val, she, so Val's at the top Val Wilmer, yeah, but she also did the interviews. She did all the photographs and all the interviews with all the bands in the Grove. So, and then, these guys made, and then these guys filmed it the next year. One day, Eddie Grant filmed himself on the stage, and the next day, we filmed all the Grove bands. All that stuff exists. Well, you know, just, what, what's That's 1980. That's 1983. Because, again, Val is a really interesting character. Yeah, weird woman. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, in terms of the images, yeah, 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 yeah. Carnival, yeah, yeah, jazz, yeah, absolutely, absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. Anyway, she did the she did the definitive article on reggae in West London, and I've got a copy of it somewhere. I just gotta just gotta fish it out. So we're now nineteen eighty, and there's what I like you to comment on there is a shift that's happening yeah where, um, what you lot you lot are in um you lot are in uh, island studios and all all the guys in the band this will for who's this will walk geezer what no i mean i couldn't get a look in with steve we're Birmingham, mate, so <laughs> <laughs> we don't know you we're not supposed to know <laughs> <laughs> do you know i've worked with every roots and culture band coming out of the Western world, apart from Steel Pulse. Really? <laughs> I worked with everybody, apart from Steel Pulse. <laughs> no comment. <laughs> I was not the manager. No, I know. Um, but what I was going to say is, around about 1980, yeah. there was a shift. Yeah. Where, for the resident or indigenous reggae bands, it's they have been overlooked by the record companies, yeah, primarily yeah, yeah. Jamaican yeah, that's right. bands coming. That's right, that's right. And round about 1980, we see a take, um, the onslaught of white British uh, ska bands. Yeah, yeah. And reggae bands, I think UB40 arrives. Yeah, 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 so yeah. I'm just curious from, you're now immersed in promoting the carnival stage and so forth, how that Impacting on well, I'm beginning to, I begin to get a vision of what's, what's happening because I'm in the Portobello Hotel with all these, like for example, 
Epi Epstein, who had a place in New York called My Father's Place, where all the reggae bands went from Jamaica, right? He's this big, fat Jewish guy, you know. Now, Epi would stay in the best suite in the Portobello Hotel, but the bands would be in some service flat somewhere, right? So I began, I began to be, have the indignation of seeing this, and it would be, it'd be, um, it'd be you before, it'd be um, Black Uhuru, it'd be the Mighty Diamonds. He had them all, Yellow Man. He had all, he had, Epi had all the bands, and he'd bring them to London and do his thing. But they, their main source of income was the American circuit in those days. And his name is Epi? Epi, Epi Epstein. He's probably dead. Um, so I, man I managed to do as well away from the Art Club Hall. I put them in, um, in um, what do you call it, the Porchester Hall. And then I get the opportunity to go to America. Now, that's when it changed for me because I realized that no matter what you do, you're never going to get up-and-coming bands in England to work with you as a black promoter. Because, look, I was in the Acklam Hall, Rough Trade was in the Acklam Hall, but Rough Trade wouldn't let me promote. Any of their bands that were really happening, they'd find a way to promote themselves. They wouldn't give it to me. Would you say that was a racist thing? Yeah. That's, uh, I mean, look, Travis, what's his name? That, anyway, Travis, I know him. I was, we always greet each other very friendly. His son and my daughter, great friends. His son was at my daughter's wedding and, you know, blah, blah, blah. You know, it's all... But in those days, they didn't rape me. They didn't rape... I know, I'd be in there. They knew I was promoting Acklam Hall. I was the one in Acklam Hall. But they would find ways to work Acklam Hall without me. Which is, you know... I began to realize that that was happening. But then I go to America for the first time. And it's crazy how I actually get to America because, I mean, they already destroy, destroyed my opportunity to go by me, sentencing me to three years on a bogus drug charge. But nonetheless, I got in because I submitted my passport with my son and my wife's passport and ignored the drug offense bit. So I get into America... And as, and as I arrive, I see the Village Voice magazine, and it has a picture of Mary Baraka, Leroy Jones on the cover, who is a great black poet. So, of course, I bought it. And I'm reading this magazine, and I realize this is the magazine where all the music's at. So I'm looking through it, and I see Richie Havens is playing at the bottom line. And I go to the bottom line, and I buy tickets in advance, and then I turn up on the night. And, of course, Richie Havens in New York is no big deal. But I've bought tickets, so I'm actually in the key seat, right in the front. And there's my hero, Richie Havens, playing. And he does an incredible set. And I feel inspired after the set to go backstage and talk to him about what I've been doing in London with the carnival and with Glastonbury. And, and Richie says, well, you know, man, we were going <laughs> we to break the cultural embargo and go to South Africa, but if you can put something together... Will come there instead. So, um, again, I'm still curious. At this point, are you now? I'm a promoter. Well, uh, even then, I was still. I'm still. I'm still. Uh, I did my apprenticeship in my own offices, if you know what I mean. I mean. Sure, but if you're now 
in America. Well, I'm beginning to. I'm be, yes, yeah, but it's all it's all my drive. It's I, it's I'm not I'm not sure what I'm gonna do because you know, Black Productions, which is my promotions company, was a benefit a benefit promotion company. The idea was to do benefit concerts, so it was a kind of way of hiding hiding from the harsh realities of the business world. So getting, getting, getting um, organizations to attach themselves to me while I promote. Do you see what I mean? So I would guarantee a bit of an audience by doing that. If, I, if I'm doing a benefit for, for this community center, or I did a benefit for the women's movement, for example, and packed the place out. I did a, I did a benefit for black prisoners' welfare. You know, I was doing benefit concerts because it was the, it was the safest way to go. So when I got Richie, when I got Richie, I came back and I went to the Institute of Race Relations and said to them, I'm going to do a benefit for you in the Porchester Hall because it was the safest way to go. So I did Richie in the Porchester Hall, did 900 people, sold it out. And then we went, we did, um, we did Bristol and we did Liverpool. Liverpool, man, they treated us like, they treated us so badly, you would not believe. Oh, and we did, this, we did the concert with, with Richie in Liverpool on John Lennon's birthday, right? Which is meant, you know, it's a, you know and Richie sings a lot of John Lennon songs. But we were in the major theatre there, and the day I went to take the posters, and to see the venue and to do a recce and to talk to them, the posters were up. And then when I left and <laughs> I'd forgotten something in the venue, I went back, the, all the posters had come down. I should have read the signs then. But when we turned up on the night for the show, they had moved us to a smaller club called Eric's and they had um, Steely, Steel Eye Span playing, playing in the venue instead. And we were, we were relegated to a little venue. This was Richie Havens, right? And the sprinklers went off in the venue and Steel Ice Pan's gig were washed out anyway. But is that, is that the promoters or... Um, the venue owners. Or the venue owners. Venue's they owners. They, they, didn't, they, didn't, they never worked with a black promoter before and they didn't really want to be doing with it. But is, well, is it, and what I'm asking here, is it the idea of working with a black promoter or they didn't want black... Musicians in the well, I, 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 it's a bit of both, I would have thought. They didn't really care who Richie... Richie Havens was of no significance to them. Richie Havens is, a, is one of the heroes of Woodstock. Richie Havens is a massive artist. But they didn't care. Now, okay. in meeting Richie Havens, I what meet... Time period? Yeah. What, what, what are we? This is 81. When I meet Richie Havens, I also, he introduced me to his then manager, a man called Victor Ogilvy. And Victor Ogilvy is a black man who is um, working in jazz in America as an agent. He's got, um, he's got Monty Alexander, he's got, um, you know, he's, got, he's got people like that. He's got the Art Ensemble of Chicago, he's, got, you know, he's, on, he's, he's working with Lester Bowie quite a lot. You know, he's, got, he's got connections. So he gets me, so then, so then Michael Evis wants Taj Mahal for that same 81, for, for Glastonbury. So I get it through Victor Ogilvy for him. 
So Victor Ogilvy is my key man because he's getting me acts. He's getting me acts in America who in some ways have been told by British agents that they're not happening anymore. And in fact, what's happening to them is they're working the sort of club circuit in America. They're not really getting concert. They're not doing concert halls. But I'm offering them concert halls at great risk to myself because it's part of my apprenticeship. So I'm doing, I'm doing Richie Havens. I'm doing Taj Mahal. I'm doing Curtis Mayfield. Right? I'm doing Gil Scott-Heron. I'm doing the Art Ensemble of Chicago. All through Victor Ogilvy. I'm doing Billy Paul. I'm getting all these acts through him and putting myself in major music venues at the same time, which would never, there was no way a young black guy could, could get into a major venue because you could never get the acts. You could never get the acts. No way. Okay. You certainly couldn't get any look. Listen, all the local acts that I've worked with over the years, even when I was a so-called established promoter, were acts who I built up and at the point where they were ready to start receiving phone calls, they didn't want me anymore. They'd go off to what they considered established agents who could take them beyond England into, into whatever, you know. So, I mean, I, I've got about half a dozen examples of that, you know, with acts who I've worked with. But it's because of the Americans, working with the Americans, that I start to get an experience of working in major venues. So, I've, you, know, like, you know, like I say, I did Glastonbury with, with, with Taj, with Richie Havens, with Curtis Mayfield. Would you, would you say that you were one of the first promoters attached Black promoters attached to Glastonbury. Absolutely. And I mean, the can only... You just, can you just actually say that? Yeah, I was, I was the first black promoter to work with Michael Evers. The first person that Michael Evers actually booked black acts with. And I mean, you know, and Michael, I mean, Michael is a multi-millionaire now and whatever he is, God bless him. But those brothers have never checked for me. Never. And I mean, I suppose I should have... I should have hung on to their coattails and, and reminded them of where our beginnings. But I never wanted to do that. I mean, basically, because in 84, I wanted to do my own festival. And I tried to do my own festival for Nelson Mandela. And I mean, I, I only got 7,000 people and I didn't have any support from anyone. So I failed in the wider scheme of things. I failed. But I had Jimmy Cliff, I had Gilsko Heron, I had Asmat, I had Hugh Masakela. You know, I was in Crystal Palace Concert Bowl. It's a major venue, a big gig. But the anti-apartheid movement didn't give me any help. I gave them a shitload of posters. They stayed, they stayed in a bundle in the corner. They didn't help me. No, I mean, I promoted that show, again, by myself. I've never had the support of any particular community in terms of what I'm doing. When I did Gil Scott Heron in 83, I went, actually flew to Washington, went to see Gil, booked him to come and do three nights in the Commonwealth Institute, and he agreed, and we did them. Well, then the record company dealt with me, and they were, you know, they were all right. But generally speaking, I had no, the record companies would always, if I was working with a major act, the record companies would always help. They would, you know, they would, 
they would buy 100 pair of tickets, you know, they would help with the press, because, because basically they're not helping me, <laughs> they're, they're selling their records, because they're, they're, they're making sure that their artist gets a high profile on the gig, because in those days, the gig, was, the gig wasn't the thing, it was selling records was the thing. It's changed now, now the gig's the thing, records is, you know, but in those days, if you were working with a major act, you got support from the record company. Did you get that support? Or you're you didn't yeah, I got, I got it with Gil Heron at, at Arista. The people at Arista helped me with Gil Heron, yeah. Okay, so we're now... Um, 83. 83, and I'm still pushing you. To reggae. <laughs> well, it's not even that, because you're still saying you're not really a promoter. Well, no, I mean, listen, even though I end up getting an OBE for the development and pro promotion of live black music, in the wider scheme of things, I, the, the business doesn't com consider me as being part of the business, even to this day. I know they don't. Right. You have to ask them, man. We're still 82, 83 yeah. period, and you're promoting lots of different kinds of music. Yeah, but now, yeah, yeah, I'm doing mainly Americans at this point, and slowly, slowly, slowly moving towards, uh, and then I, so yeah, then at 84, I'm doing, so I've, I mean, I've, been, I've already been chairman of the Carnival once, I, ran, I was the chair in 81. And then um, there's rioting in 81, and I think again in 84, and then the Arts Council calls in the black community to talk about how they can help us in terms of improving the situation for youth, black youth. And, and um, they set up a committee called the Black Arts Monitoring Committee. And um, myself, and a guy called Viram Draswani, an Asian, a central to the music part of it. And um, it, 84 is the year I start working with Abdullah Ibrahim as well, the, the, the South African piano player, um, who, um, you know, some people call Dalo Bran and some people call Penny Bran because of what they, can, what they think of his attitude and stuff. Fantastic. I mean, you could forgive Abdullah Abraham anything when he was sitting behind that piano. He just, he did church. But when he was away from that piano, he could be the most horrible person to me. But, okay, because we don't want to dwell on no, I know, I know, I know, I know, I know, I know. I worked with him for seven years, by the way. Well, again, that's testimony to your staying <laughs> Um, we're now 83, yeah. and I'm just curious, so we've got the Arts Council now showing interest. Yes, yeah. Um, how did that interest translate into anything substantial? Okay, so, they, you know, there was lots of talk, you know, I mean, there was a guy called, um, Lou Rittner was the head of the Arts Council at that time, and there was a guy called Anthony Everett, 
who was the one who was making all the lofty, lofty statements about how they would give the black community 4.2% of arts council budget across the board. So not only would they give us 4.2% for arts budget, but all the, all the, all the theater would give us 4.2% and visual arts give us 4.2% and publisher would give us 4.2%. It was all, it was that they had all these heady ideas of how they might operate and they, they appointed this black guy to the actual arts council, a guy called Gavin, something or the other, I don't know. Um, there are a lot of people in there. There's one woman who's in the House of Lords now who was in there as well. Um, and this is 1983? 83, coming 84, 83, 84. But so, so the, that's when they set up this committee and, and the committee is going along. They're making lots of moves and I'm promoting shows. And I, um, I put a proposal on the table to do, because I'm, I'm starting to tour band, so I'm getting an experience of touring now because I tour Richie, you know, I tour Abdullah. I'm doing a bit of touring so I can see the potential for touring. So I start talking about a touring network, right? Not just some fantasy, but for having some real experience. And, I, and actually I'm sitting there with a toy in my pocket and talking about how they might fund it, right? So then they say, okay, go off and do the budget. So me and Viram go off and do budget for a touring circuit and then bring budget back and they accept budget and say we can have the money. Is this the first substantial funding? First, before that, out of the Arts Council's budget for music, they were spending something like £22,000 at that point. And then they've committed to spending £400,000 thousand pounds on music or more. So now Verum stays, first of all, they split it into Asian and Afro-Caribbean, which they should never have done. But I'm not, I'm not a power, I'm just a flunky, a pawn, like Bob Dylan says, a pawn in their game. So Verum stays central to the South Asian money. And now the Afro-Caribbean money, it's really my money. I mean, it's my money, it's my project, but I have to submit myself to interviews and the, and the people who are interviewing me are people like um, Felix Cross, um, um, one player, what's his name? I um, can't remember his name, Blackhorn player, um, a, a white guy from Brighton called Dick Witt, a um, bunch of people who don't even know what it is we're dealing with, but they're the, they're the interviewing panel. Felix Cross says to me, I've got meg I seem to have megalomanic tendencies because I'm doing so much already. And then they say to me, would I consider the person they appoint coming to my office for, to do like a kind of apprenticeship? And I'm talking about using this money to start kicking ass, man. And 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 and. <laughs> I'm slightly confused. So you've approached with a project, a tour in hand. This is the money that could finance that tour. No, 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 no. They don't do it like that. No, the money is to set up a circuit. The money is to set up a circuit. So building um, means the production 
and then budget also for the actual work. Now, none of them have an idea of how it's going to work. I'm the only one who actually has an idea of how it's going to work, but they don't want to give me the gig. And it stays like that for the duration of the project. Which is about nearly 10 million pounds. Now, in the first period, I introduced Ruth Jackson and Byron Orm into the mix. And they bring Keith Harris. And then Keith Harris, because of his connection with Stevie Wonder, gets to be the prominent, I'm going to say, the prominent nigger in there. <laughs> you know? And so, now, I had to liquid... I, I, Business got so bad for me at one point that I had to, I had problems, I had to liquidate my company, right? And so my credit, my credit was bad, yeah? My credit was bad. Now, I think that is the basis on the which, well, no, I don't know what the basis is because, look, I was doing um, Martin Luther King Day celebrations, right? Yeah. And when Stevie Wonder first established it as, a, as an official day, I did the, f the first one. Yes? Yeah. I did it at Hammersmith Palais with Linton, Quizzy Johnson, a bunch of other bands. And then I, was, then I did the second one, and I used Junior Giscom. And Junior Giscom was managed by Keith Harris at the time. Right? So the guy actually knew of my existence. Right? But for some reason, he refused, he's always refused to deal with me. I don't know, I don't know, I don't know what I've done to him. It's something to do, he's got some idea that my character is flawed, that I'm a devious person. He's got me down as some kind of, I don't know what. But he's always refused to deal with me. So, he becomes the chair of the music circuit. After the first years of the circuit where this woman Paula Fraser is running it. She runs it for two years. And at, that, and, and at the end of her period, no, I think she runs it for four years. I can't remember how long. But anyway, at the end of her period of running it, she leaves and they re-advertise the job again and I apply again. Now, this time now, Keith, ha Keith Harris is in charge and a guy called Rajan, Rajan Cooper. Rajan Hooper. You know Rajan? Yeah. He, he was a guy appointed by the Arts Council to be the music officer. But he fit he fitted so many categories. He's an Asian African paraplegic. This is right? African and Caribbean music touring circuit. Service. Yeah, yeah, so yeah, yeah. Paula Fraser ran it for four years, spent over a million pounds, and then left to join a film production company. Right? I mean, those people broke my heart into, into so many little pieces, you would not believe, right? And then they advertised the job and I applied. I had references from the people who run the Academy Theatre in Brixton, the people who ran the Town and Country Club in, in Kentish Town, two major live music venues. They were both saying, I'm a competent person, I know what I'm dealing with, I'm equipped to run a music circuit. 
they've shortlisted me, Charles Eastman, and Clarence Baker. Clarence Baker is the manager of Miss Teen Roots. He's not a promoter, he's manager manager of a band. Black, Ch white. black both black. Okay. Keith, um, Charles Eastman um, is a kind of a musicologist who used, was part of Stearns, helped to develop Stearns as a, you know, he, he knows all, a lot about African music especially. Clarence Baker, I employed him as one of my stage managers on the Nottingham Carnival. Okay. Now, he's also working for Paul Boteng, canvassing. No, no, no. Yeah, so he's, got, he's connected He's connected to Keith Harris because Keith Harris is part of Paul Boteng's thing. Right? So they give him the gig. I need the gig so bad, man. I'm sitting in this flat. I'm not making any money. My business is being liquidated. I'm suffering. At one point, my eyes are just streaming. Like, like I'm crying continually. I got something wrong with my eyes. So I'm always... I'm always weeping. I'm, I'm just, <laughs> I'm just weeping and weeping and weeping, and then they they, they realize I've got blocked viaducts or whatever, and it's like blocked. You know, my tear ducts are blocked. So, so they give Clarence a job to run the circuit. Clarence goes in there. He 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 forms an import export company. He moves the company into a house up in um, sort of. Queen's Park, and I can say this because I think it's the truth, arranges for the house, to, for, the, for, for the offices to be burgled. I mean, just, he just ravishes the company financially, really. There's no other way to describe it. So they don't sack him. The woman who is the production manager, who was Paula's friend, she wants to leave because she's working with Clarence and she hates it. So she leaves, they, they demote Clarence, the production manager, and give Charles Eastman the job of artistic director. No interviews, no advertising the job, they just slip him in. Are you happy for this to be on? Yeah, it's the truth, man. Okay, 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 okay. Right, and he, Charles Eastman, runs the circuit from then under the guidance of Keith Harris for the next, I can't think how many years, for the next, for however long, the, for as long as the, the, the project continued to exist. You go into that office, they're smoking ganja all day in there, right? And there's nothing happening, nothing happening. I go to them with a project so it's called, what was the project but called? We've got to be careful of time because yeah. we don't want to spend too much yeah, time. Yeah, on it, but you know, but I'm telling you, that's a whole wrap. So that's, and that's a particularly important component because yeah. nothing followed that. Nothing followed, I tell you nothing followed because I tell you why nothing followed it. At, at the point where it ends for them and they get a year's reprieve because I start working with them where Charles has given me a bit of funding towards some of my touring and so he's actually able to show income and show real work, they get a, a year's reprieve. And the, in that year's reprieve, they use that year's reprieve money to afford themselves all substantial redundancies. 
right? And when they close that office, all they have are some out-of-date computers and some photocopying machines and desks and not, nothing from the infrastructure to show for it. Not, nothing. No major successes. Nothing. 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 Now, if you have a circuit like that, you are affording yourself offices, um, free, not freehold offices, you are affording yourself PA, you are affording yourself backline, endless backline, you are affording yourself endless means of transportation, limousine, bus, truck, you are affording yourself printing press, you are affording yourself, you are acquiring all these things because these are the means of production, man. So what was produced? They didn't do any of that. They didn't have any of that. They never had any of that. None of that was ever produced. They came out of there with nothing. Okay. And at the end of it, I'm the one who gets an OBE for the development and promotion of live black music, even though they managed to ignore me almost completely for the entire period of time. That, That's the story, man. That in itself poses certain questions. Um, You've got to talk to Keith Harris about that. I'll get to that. <laughs> okay. Let me just focus back on, we haven't got to reggae, and we're almost out of time. <laughs> so, in terms of, you're now recognised, whether you're supported or not, yeah. within the circuit, as being active, yeah. and effective. Uh, but you're still an outsider. Absolutely. So, I'm an outsider in the Jamaican community as well. So, as the consumer outsider, yeah. how do you manage to connect with Jamaican artists? Well, with difficulty. <laughs> you know, so like... I'm looking at all these. Yeah, but yeah. Uh, but there's not many Jamaicans here, if you check it out. I mean, I, I mean I've, worked, I've worked with them all. Ultimately, I worked, I, worked with, um, I worked with Toots and the Maytels, I worked with Augustus Pablo, Pablo Moses, Mighty Diamonds, Culture, Yellow Man, Toots and the Maytels, Marcia Griffiths, Freddie McGregor, Beres Hammond, Burning Spear. Burning Spear is one of my Morgan heritage. I worked with all these people. <laughs> Dennis Brown, Gregory Isaacs. I've done shows with all of those people, but I would I'm not... Written. But Linton, Linton is a friend. Linton is a friend. And Aswad? Aswad are my... Misty and Roots are my friends. Misty and Roots are my brethren. I mean, I've got so many good experiences of working with Misty and Roots. I love those brothers. I love them to the ground. Um, Joseph Hill from Culture is another one who is very dear to me. I love Joseph Hill. But in the main, I don't have much time for these people, you know. Not really. <laughs> They're very selfish people. I, don't, I can't remember any of them ever saying to me, how are you doing, Wilf? You know. So, let me, let me come to, because we're coming to the end. Yeah. What would you say, two things, what is your high point as a promoter? Because you still haven't admitted to being a promoter. But what would you say is a high point in your uh, well, career <laughs> in the industry? I love promoting Burning Spear. I mean, it was, 
Every time I worked at Burning Spear, I always made serious money. It was one of the reasons why I kept going, was because every year I did Burning Spear. And Burning Spear would always say, he's not coming to England unless he works with Wolf Walker. So which was like, that was crucial to me, you know, it was really crucial to me. Um, and it's very few of them who kind of took that kind of political stance. I mean, Linton did the same. When Linton first came up with his first major album for Ireland Records, you know, he, he said he would work with me, and then they wanted him to go somewhere else. And he said, no, man, I'm sticking with Will Walker. So, you know, because basically, I haven't had many... Oh, shit. Um, um, let me see who it is. Danny, Carl, this is this is a promoter in Birmingham. You, you know him? Yeah. Anyway, um, you're just talking about Linton. Yeah, yeah, Linton. Yeah, Linton. Linton is a good brother. There's very few of them like that. You know who? I mean, for example, Freddie McGregor. When I met Freddie McGregor in 1986, he was not really established here at all, and I brought him here for two months. And we did, in that period, we did 30 gigs. And I was responsible for him and the entire Studio One band. For two months, imagine it. And we did gigs, we went, we, went, we, did, we went to Europe, we went to Holland, we went to Germany, we went to Sweden. We went all around England several times. And then when the tour was finished, two weeks later, I, don't, I Just Don't Want to Be Lonely was in the top ten. And he signed to Jazz Summers. And, and Jazz Summers treated me so badly, you would not believe. When I went, I went, I did a, I did a carnival reggae festival on Wormwood Scrubs, where I paid for the entire Studio One band to come from Jamaica. And Jazz Summers booked Freddie McGregor into a, a, a festival in Queen's Park football ground in the same period on the back of what I was doing, and then proceeded to write me a letter telling me about my incompetence. I mean, you know, these brothers, these musicians, they exposed me to some harsh, harsh treatment by white folk, which should never, never, ever happen. So, we just, well, there's a couple of things. One is the high point. You identify Burning Spears. Yeah, Burning Spears is a very Linton high point. Linton, Linton high point. I mean, um, look, Misty and Roots, always and very, Misty. always a very high point with Misty and Roots. Yeah. High points with Abdullah, Taj Mahal. I mean, I love some, some of these musicians have been great, you know, doing gigs with them has been great, you know. And being successful. This, the high point is when you're successful, when the house is full and it's 2,000 people or 4,000 people. Well, let's ask you, what's your your most memorable concert? Oh. Where you actually thought, you know what, this is why I do what I it's do. It's Spear. It's Spear, 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 Burning Spear, Morgan Heritage. Yeah. Um, okay, that's good. I need one more yeah. thing from you. Um, the project is called Base Culture, mm. which is looking at the impact legacy of well, it's black music in the UK, but we're focusing on reggae. Mm. So we need the interviewer to say something, um, uh, just a, what do you 
call it shout out. Um, I support bass culture because that's the project. Man, you know I support bass culture. What are you, doing? What are you dealing with? <laughs> I support bass culture, of course. <laughs>